Proverbs chapter 9. Proverbs chapter number 9. I do want to say thank you to the church family who were able to come out for the funeral last week for Mrs. Kirkland. Uh, you were an encouragement, and um, I wouldn't hear Sunday to uh, thank you, but um, I do appreciate that very much. Proverbs 9 is the end of the first section of the book of Wisdom. The whole focus of these first nine chapters have been uh, the call of wisdom. It's been put in several different motifs, if you want to use that word. A father giving instruction to his son, walk the right path. Talking about a life, making choices. Every path has choices. Avoid the wrong choices, the wrong turns, and stay on the right turns so that your life uh, will have a positive testimony and be reflective of uh, the wisdom of God. So earlier in Proverbs, it has been personified as a father speaking to a son. And then over these last few weeks, as we've looked in chapter 8 and now tonight in chapter 9, uh, wisdom does take on uh, a personality. Tonight, it's a woman of wisdom in verse 1. It says, wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars. She hath killed her beasts, etc." Then you get to the end of the chapter and you have the opposite end of the spectrum. Verse 13, a foolish woman is clamorous for she sitteth at the door, etc." So you see that same idea of personification, but this is really the climax and the conclusion of this chapter. Now, ladies, don't take offense that they, they use this idea of a foolish woman in contrast with a wise woman. It, it is not a misogynistic uh, you know, kind of a terminology and negative towards women. It's just trying to give personification to it or personality and so that we understand it. So we're, it really breaks into three sections. Now, the first six verses talks about wisdom. The middle six verses are an application or an admonition of wisdom. And the last six verses are the voice of foolishness. And so you see the contrast as we walk uh, through the chapter. So let's look at the first six verses. Wisdom hath builded her house. She hath hewn out her seven pillars she hath killed her beasts, she hath mingled her wine, she hath also furnished her table. She hath sent forth her maidens, she crieth upon the highest places of the city. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. So I've just entitled this Wisdom's Invitation. You can sort of hear wisdom, this wise woman calling out, saying, come, find satisfaction here, find what you need here. Everything is provided, and that's why uh, she was calling out. She was calling out to those, really the same people that, the fool, a foolish woman called out to at the end of the chapter, but we'll see that in just a moment. So first of all, we see 
the provision. In verses uh, 2 and 5, specifically, it, it gives this picture of a banquet. Now, it's being held in a beautiful home. She hath builded her house. She hath hewn her seven pillars. As the idea of a, a you know, rather ornate, beautiful place. Some have drawn that the seven pillars or seven foundational truths of the local church, I think they're sort of reading into it a little bit. But I would say, though I'm not big on numerology, seven being the number of perfection, there is a picture here of that all we would need, anything we would need, and all we would need wisdom for is being offered. And so in verse 2, we see a, pic, a table overflowing with uh, food and provision. She's killed her beast. She's mingled the beverage. She's furnished the table. Verse 5, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine which I have mingled. So it's overflowing. In America, this Thursday, tomorrow, is Thanksgiving. And though I like the timing of Canadian Thanksgiving, I like the way they do it in the States. It's a lot longer break. <laughs> My son left work yesterday at 3, and he's partying for the rest of the weekend, you know. But they can travel and get together. But, you know, whenever you have Thanksgiving, here or there, generally, uh, the table has more food on it than you can really eat. At least any place I've been, it is. It, it, it's the bad time to preach on gluttony. That's all I know. Uh, one Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, I did. Didn't go over very well. Uh, but the point is, the table's overflowing. Everything that could be wanted. Bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. In John 6, 48, the mingled wine. The idea is not an alcoholic beverage, but mixing spices in the fruit of the vine you know, to have a, a special beverage offered. And the, the point is that, you know, God will provide us wisdom for whatever we need wisdom for if we seek it. There is no problem you face. There's no conflict. There's no decision you have to make that God does not already have the answer. He that seeketh wisdom shall find it. Psalm 104, verse 15, in parallel to this, says, And, the, and wine maketh uh, glad the heart of man, and oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengtheneth man's heart. So the table is filled with bounty. Folks, if you want to look at it this way, the word of God is filled with bounty. And it's whether or not we come to the table hungry, you know, if you, if you snack all day before that big celebratory meal, you're going to have a hard time enjoying it. There was one time a man from Faithway came down with Phil Smith to Fostoria because uh, Faithway back in that day had shipped a lot of John and Romans there to our church. We seem to be always storing stuff for you guys long before I came here. And I had a, a, a room set aside, and we had all these boxes. And so Phil Smith brought down a man to help him, and they loaded up a, a pickup truck. I mean, it was so heavy, the truck was riding low in the back, you know. And then they went out to Phil's mom and dad's farm for a meal, and they invited me to come along. Well, Verona, 
when she, uh, you know, I'd go out there and get work done on my car and she'd call me in for lunch. She would always, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor, I didn't know you were coming in. And there's roast and there's ham and there's turkey and there's, you know, I'm like, I'm used to PB&J, you know, I mean, this is, this is overwhelming. So that's how the table was that day. And uh, Phil's brother Mark was in. I don't know if David was over as well. But I mean, big, it was like a family gathering. All these big farmer men, you know, tough, hungry. The food started coming around. Well, the other man from Faithway was sitting next to me. And I just kept saying, you better take some. She'll be offended. I just saying it under my breath. Better take some more. She'll be offended. Better take some. She'll be offended. His plate was... He got about halfway through it and he pushed back and said, I'm sorry if you're offended or not. I cannot eat anymore. Now, that's what I'm picturing what Proverbs 9 is talking about. God has all we need. Life is complex. There are difficult times. And it can be frustrating while we're waiting. But if we're waiting in faith and not in frustration, we see God provides all the wisdom we need. But then we see wisdom's priority. Look at verse 4. Or you could say, who wisdom was readily available to. Verse 4 talks about the simple. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither. As for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, come eat of my bread. Who are the simple? The word simply means, and there's a little repetition, the naive, inexperienced, but they're open-minded because it goes on to say, and wanteth understanding. This understanding is a word of moral character. It's a word of determination based on what you receive. And so wisdom is now speaking, saying, look, if you're open to learn, I'm ready to give you what you need. I'm ready to provide. Now, this is not at all dismissing or denigrating the need for education. I'm all for education. I tell our Bible college guys going into ministry, look, as soon as you get settled into ministry, start working on a master's degree. And they're like, I just got out of college. Yeah, guess what? The rest of your life, you're going to be learning. I encourage my own children, look, get a master's degree. You don't know what doors will open because of that. And here's, here's my simple story. I got a master's degree right out of college because I didn't really uh, have a good offer there to consider. Didn't feel led of the Lord to leave. I had a good job. I stayed, got my master's degree. I'm pastoring a church out in the middle of nowhere. I don't need any advanced degrees. They were salt of the earth, blue collar uh, people, they're lovely people, but they weren't impressed by degrees, but I felt impressed the Lord to work on my doctorate of sacred ministries. And for several years, every January, every June, I was going to uh, uh, one week, 32 hours of class in that week. I had to read uh, 2,000 to 2,500 pages before I arrived. I had to write a 20 to 25 page paper after I left. It wasn't because I needed it at that place. But I can tell you this, if I had not done that way back, when Faithway was considering me to come, that helped open the door. 
preparation always precedes blessing. You, you don't know what God's going to have you do down the road, so prepare now. So I'm not at all. And this passage is not saying, uh, don't seek after wisdom. But you know, the truth of the matter is, education sometimes can be a hindrance to wisdom because we start becoming very dependent on ourselves. And so he says, if you're simple, you may not be experienced, but you want to learn, you have a, a good heart, wisdom says, come to me. And you know, I would say this also, that God is more likely to use a simple, sincere person greatly than an educated, prideful person. D.L. Moody was not well educated. In fact, history records how he slaughtered the king's English. I mean, he was awful. But the truth of the matter is, God used him to shake two continents with the gospel. I mean, he, he filled major halls in England coming to hear him preach, as well as the U.S. And you, you ought to read his biography. It's astounding the number of people that walked the aisle and got saved under this man who could not speak the king's English well. In fact, the story is told how he was holding a massive meeting in England in some major music hall, packed out every night. They couldn't get all the people in. And the sophisticated clergy in town were so frustrated. How can this country bumpkin, so to speak, I'm not saying that's exactly what they said, how can he do this when he does so poorly with the king's English? And they went to see him at a flat that he had rented. And he welcomed them in. He said, Mr. Moody, we're here to find out how and why God so uses you. The story goes that in that conversation, Moody turned to them and he said, well, look out here. It was a view overlooking a big park. He said, what do you see? And he's pastors, these ministers who are getting a little irritated at this country bumpkin said, oh, people, it's a park and a mother pushing a, a baby pram and all of that kind of stuff. And then to another, what do you see? And what do you see? They, they described what you could see with your human eyes. And then they said, okay, Moody, what do you see? And tears started rolling down his cheeks as he said, I see souls that will spend eternity in hell if somebody doesn't tell them about Jesus. And the writer said, there's one element of why he was so greatly used. So I'm not saying you have to be you know, super high educated, but you do need God's wisdom. And the priority of the wisdom was for those who want it. You have an understanding, you desire an understanding heart, you, you're simple, come. And then you see the principle, verse number six. Forsake the foolish and live. And go in the way of understanding. The choice of foolishness over wisdom is always costly. So God says, forsake the foolish and live. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, should have heeded that advice. 
he asked the old men, what do you think I ought to do when he ascended to the throne? They said, look, pressure's been pretty high. Lighten up and the people will love you. They'll follow you forever. Then he went to the young men, his peers, and said, what do you think I ought to do? And they said, put the pressure on, raise the taxes. The people can do more. And Rehoboam listened to the foolish and not to the wise. And the, and the nation was divided. So we see wisdom's instruction or invitation. But then secondly, the second six verses are wisdom's instruction. Verse 7. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it so the, these six verses are giving instruction or they're giving advice concerning the wisdom and folly showing the positive nature of wisdom and the negative reality of foolishness first of all we see in verses seven in the first half of verse number eight reproving a fool this is the result of trying to Help a fool out, give him some instruction, give him some advice. They're described there in verse 7 as a scorner. A scorner is an arrogant, prideful boaster. This is a person who would say, who do you think you are? What right do you have to tell me what to do? I'm not going to listen to you. Proverbs 15, 12 says, A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. So a scorner is a person who rejects instruction. But then he talks in verse 7 about the wicked. He that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. The wicked are hostile. They're guilty. They know they've done wrong, but they still aren't open for help. And rather than accepting instruction or reproof, even if it's well-intentioned or given in kindness, spe speaking the truth in love, it's resented when any, they, they resent when anyone is critical of what they say, do, think, or plan. Verse 8 goes on, the first half. Reprove not a scorner. There is that same person, lest he hate thee. One of the commentators put it this way. The ability to hear and respond in an honest way to criticism is crucial to personal positive growth. How do you respond when somebody points out an area that's not going right? Let's get real personal. Husbands, when your wife points out something. Wives, when your husband speaks to you about something. 
Students when you're teacher. I mean, we can go forever with this. The point is, are we open? Are we wanting to improve? Or do we put up the defense mechanism right away? Who do you think you are? It's fascinating to me as a preacher of the gospel, people can be in the same service, one accepted and say, that, that was a lifesaver, that helped me, and others walk out mad. And by the way, I've had that happen. You can always tell the red starts creeping up the back of the neck. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's fascinating. It's delivered in the same tone. I'm not saying I always use the right tone. I try to. It's delivered in the same manner with the same heart. You see, it doesn't matter how wise the, the speaker or the counselor is for that wisdom to be helpful. What matters is how receptive we are. And he's saying they reject reproof. Then notice verse 9, the reasoning. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. We'll actually go back to the end of verse 8. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. The, the reality is, folks, wisdom, like knowledge, is cumulative in nature. In other words, you learn, you learn more, you learn more, you learn more. I mean, simple uh, education. Kindergarten, they learn the letters and sounds, and they put together blends, and they learn to read. But they're not doing that in grade 11. In grade 11, that part is sort of automatic pilot, but they're thinking more about the meaning of the words. In mathematics, they learn to count. But eventually you're into algebra and geometry and trigonometry and calculus and stuff out there that I don't even want to think about. It gives me a headache. But the point is, a wise person who's open and wants to learn, notice verse 9, will be yet wiser. God is not holding back on any of us. Uh, God wants us to learn from our mistakes, learn from our failures, uh, take our experiences, both the good and the bad, and, and grow through them and get a deeper understanding and see more clearly and have a greater appreciation as your knowledge base grows. I jokingly say when I teach on marriage or on childbearing, I wish I had the experience I had now and go back and start over again. I don't want to start a family at 66, but now, you know, I, I take this knowledge base back to 22 and start over. That'd be cool. It would have been great. Take what I've learned in these 44 years of marriage and go back and get married. And if I would just practice what I've learned, life would be a whole lot better. So th there's a rationale that's presented here. And then verse 10, the very central verse of the chapter is like the Mount Everest. It's repeated again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. And I know I pointed it out the last few weeks, but chapter 1 verse 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I would say chapter 9 verse 10 is the central truth that stands out in these first nine chapters. Wisdom begins 
when we have that right awe, that right attitude toward God, the fear of the Lord, and ends with the knowledge of the holy. A teachable person is always growing. And if they are to live, they have to know and live the word of God. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. You know, sometimes children will say, well, show me why and then I'll obey. God says, when you obey, I'll show you why. I think I told you this before. I read a book many, many years ago. And the writer made one statement that I've never forgotten. He said, obedience is the opener of the eyes. We have no right to say to God, you show me why and then I'll obey you. What we are to say is, God, I trust you. I know you know what's best. I'm going to obey and believe you'll show me why. You know, a new convert. You start discipling them and you get to... You know, discipling them on, say, uh, honoring God financially. You know, I remember a deacon in the first church I pastored, he said, when, he said, when I got saved and the preacher told me I was a tithe, I just laughed. I said, I wouldn't make enough money to pay my bills then. He said, but when I started honoring God, God showed me ways to be wise with the finances, and he moved right up. And he was a plant manager for Pratt Whitney, comp a company that supplied turbine blades made out of titanium for Pratt Whitney jet engines and was doing very, very well. He said, I would have never gotten to this point if I hadn't just believed God and trusted God to open my eyes. Now, there are some Christian financial advisors who say, look, if you have debt, don't tithe till you get out of debt. That's stupid. And it's not biblical. There's no faith in that. Faith comes by believing God, practicing what God says, and watching God bring you through. And, and so, you know, we, we need to understand that. But notice verse 11. This verse has created some questions, uh, and I think legitimate questions, in people's minds. For my, by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. And there are several passages where it talks about obedience to parents, you get long life. But then in our personal experience, we know good people that had a heart for God that died young. So wait a second, how does that all come together? In my study for this chapter, I probably, I, mean, I already had a, a, in my mind a thought pattern, but John Phillips' commentary really helped me a great deal. I just sort of summarized it a little bit, but he said, remember the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, the Jews certainly had hope of heaven, but all of their promises referred to blessings in this life. You know, the land, material things, physical things, things that were temporal, but they were conditional. If you do this, then I will do this. God's working with the Jews, they were God's earthly people, if you want to put it that way. But in the New Testament, as believers in Christ, we're not connected to a place, a land. Our focus is on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, don't, we, we aren't concerned about the material and the temporal. 
That, that's, not, that's not a mark of God's blessing. What, what our focus is on, God's blessings are spiritual and they're heavenly and they are eternal and they're unconditional. And you know what? Even when somebody uh, passes young uh, who had a heart of wisdom, folks, they didn't end. They're, they're just enjoying eternal life before we get there. And we, we are so attached to this earth sometimes we don't see the big picture. So the Old Testament focused on a place, the promised land. The New Testament focuses on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the statement, keep in your mind. All of our blessings are in Christ. They're not in things. They're not in your wallet. They're not in your land. They're not in your family. They're in Christ. And that can never be taken away. What a wonderful truth. But then notice our responsibility. If thou be wise, thou shalt be wise for thyself. But if thou scornest, thou alone shalt bear it. You and I each make our own decisions. We make our own choices, for better, for worse. But we have to live with the consequences of those choices. So a scorner hurts himself more than anybody else. And a person who seeks wisdom helps himself more than anybody else. Of course, there's an outflow on other lies. But remember, so to the flesh, you'll of the flesh reap corruption. So to the spirit, you'll of the spirit reap life everlasting. You do reap what you sow, and so do I. So you can't be wise for me. I cannot be wise for you. We choose to embrace wisdom or folly and we suffer the consequences or rejoice. But the ultimate winner or loser is you or me. Uh, last week after the Bible study, somebody said, so in other words, you can't pray for your children to gain wisdom. No, you can pray that they would be open to receive God's wisdom and seek God's wisdom, but you answered your prayer, your kids are not going to get wisdom. They have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. They have to seek it. They have to want it. That's what we, were, we saw here earlier. So lastly, time's getting away, folly's invitation. Notice verse 13. A foolish woman is clamorous, she is simple and knoweth nothing, for she sitteth at the door of her house on the seat in the high places of the city to call passengers who go right on their ways. Whoso is simple, let him turn in hither, and as for him that wanteth understanding, she saith to him, stolen waters are sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he knoweth not that the dead are there, and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Notice the description of this foolish woman. She's clamorous. I, I had to chuckle. The word means to growl. <laughs> it has the idea of life is in a constant commotion. It's boisterous. There's no peace. There's no calm. She's simple, naive. She doesn't realize the danger she's putting before people. She knoweth nothing. She lacks discernment or perception to see the danger. But she is soliciting the simple to come her way. Verses 14 to 16, sitting at the door uh, by the way, calling out to passengers, 
to those who are simple, to those who are naive. So we see both wisdom and folly are rivals for the attention of the same people. So decisions, choices are being made as they walk the path of life. And the fool, the folly, or foolishness makes the offer to the simple the same as wisdom. Verses 4 and 16 are almost identical, but the foolishness is offering something they can't fulfill. Remember Satan in the garden? Well, God's holding out on you. Take this fruit, you'll be like the gods. He can deliver them, but he was trying to lead them away. Notice Folly's deception. Verse 17. Stolen waters are sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Now it has a immoral connotation here. Nobody will know. It'll be fun. It's, it's exciting. But let's be honest with one another. Stolen water doesn't taste any better than any other water. It doesn't taste any better. And stolen bread, or bread taken in secret, is it really more peaceful to try and shove it down your throat because you're afraid you're going to get caught or to be sitting around a table peacefully with your friends eating fresh bread and having good fellowship? See, all of Satan's apples have worms, the old preacher used to say. He polishes this up, but it's a lie. It's a lie. You know, young people sometimes feel like, I'm so restricted, I can't enjoy life. And they go out to enjoy life and they destroy it. They don't enjoy it. They bring scars into their life, harm into their life. Their reputation is marred. Their opportunities are taken away. Why? Because they believed a lie like the foolish woman. Stolen waters are sweet. Bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Notice folly's consequence, verse 18. But he knoweth not. Why? Because he's simple, naive. Doesn't discern. He knoweth not that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of hell. Now look back at six, verse 6. Forsake the foolish and live. So while wisdom offers life, foolishness brings destruction and death. When we walk the path of wisdom with simple-hearted, open-hearted desire to understand, we can live a life without regret, in peace, fulfillment, and contentment. But when we walk the path of foolishness, there's a lot of regret. There's shame. Oh, you can outlive it sometimes. There's costs, difficulty, resistance, and shame. In the final analysis, you have to understand that this is not some spooky, you know, you pray and you have some experience and now, boom, you've got wisdom. No, wisdom is integrally connected to the word of God. 
and living out the word of God. You know, folks, the Christian life is not that hard. It's impossible in your own strength, but it's really not that hard. You just have to quit resisting and submit. You want to know the key to a a Christian life that is successful? Quit arguing with God and just obey. It's really not complex. And the wisdom speeches in these first nine chapters that are ending here in this chapter over and over and over and over and over again show the value and importance of wisdom and the consequences and the danger of walking the path of the fool. And that any person only has themselves to blame for the hurt, the turmoil, the conflict, the consequences that are a result of that choice. So be wise. Walk the path of wisdom. Live out the word of God. And let it be the banquet table that you pull up to And you say, there's more here than I can take. But oh, is it all good. You know, our Thanksgiving feast, Jan always did a lovely job making this beautiful feast. And the kids would gather around the table and we would eat till we couldn't eat anymore. It all was so good, you'd say, man, I just wish I had a little more capacity to enjoy this a little bit longer. And that's how it is when you feast on God's word. If you really want it, it's there for you. But you know what? If you don't seek it, you won't find it. You won't have the wisdom. And then you'll be like the naive person listening to the siren song saying, oh, it's more fun than it looks. There's a lot more over here. And the costs are great. You know, we live in a world of of young people destroying their lives and not all young getting into middle age want to escape pressure, so a little alcohol or a little drugs, and then the, the spiral effect begins, and it becomes that little bit doesn't meet the need, so a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And, and it's a sad thing, and some people have a greater propensity to that than others, and the, the best way to never become an alcoholic and never become a drug addict is never take any drugs and never drink any booze. But the point I'm making is, unfortunately, in those situations, they want to blame everybody else. It's my parents. It's this. It's that. It's my environment. I lived in poverty. Nothing ever went my way. But the people who can get victory and be set free of that and any other bondage of sin are people who say, you know what? I made the choice. I did this to myself. I need God's grace to help me through. But if I'm depending on him, I can be victorious. I can make wise decisions from this point forward. And all of us need to say, no matter where we're at, I can live wisely if I really want to. So why don't we? All right? God's given it to us. Let's do it.